Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Elliot. I'm one of the pastors here at One Life, um, and I'm so, it, it is seriously my joy and honor to be here with you um, Sunday in this space, whether it's in person or online. Those of you who are joining us on Facebook or will be later on on, on the interwebs, welcome. Glad you're so glad you're here with us. Um, so we are on week four, week four of our series on Isaiah. And if you if you haven't heard the previous messages by either Jay Lee or Vanessa or Nan, um, please please go back and check them out because they were amazing. Um, there were some deep wells that you could just go back and draw from. And that's saying a lot, like, about any message, but I feel like it's even more so um, with this case, because, like, like Isaiah is a stinking, stinking confusing book. It's a very confusing book. Uh, very confusing book. Like there, there, like, there are so many overlapping layers of just imageries and themes, and the timeline seems to be all over the place. And so for the previous speakers and teachers to, like, make to preach a message that makes sense. Like, first of all, that's an amazing feat in itself. But, but the, the truths, that they, godly truths that they were able to draw out from the text were, I mean, it was some of the most prophetic things I've heard from a pulpit in a long time. And so really encourage you um, to go back and, and check those out. And now having said that, um, as difficult of a book Isaiah is, I am so glad that we're going through it. Because Isaiah is such a foundational book. Like, there's, like, so much of what's in Isaiah, like, all the many things that make it such a complex and complicated book, all the things that make it confusing, the very things that inspire, it, it's the very things that inspire the rest of the biblical narrative. Um, like, ooh, here, um, like, um, in some ways, like, Isaiah's like the Kobe, it's like the Kobe Bryant of, like, prophets. Like, so many of the other writers in the Bible, look at Isaiah's work ethic and like, yeah, I want to do that. You know what I mean? It's like Isaiah has such a huge influence in the Bible. Like the New Testament quotes Isaiah more than any other book. Jesus quotes from Isaiah very often. Uh, in the early church, uh, Augustine, when he was a young Christian and when he just started, um, he, he asked his mentor, um, what book in the Bible should I read first? And his mentor, Ambrose of Milan, said, Isaiah. So, you know, Give credit to where credit is due. Isaiah is a foundational book. The New Testament writers, um, uh, Jesus, the early church, they all consider Isaiah to be foundational to the faith. But what does that mean for us? What does that mean for modern readers today? What does that mean for us who are studying and reading this text now? And to that, and to that I would say, um, given the times that we are in now, like where we need a book. We need a book like Isaiah to root us back and remind us what is foundational to the Christian faith. Like we need a confusing, complex book like Isaiah so that we could go back and study it and discern it and allow, um, allow that to be a form of practice in which we apply and study and discern the confusing times that we're living in now so that we can draw out God's truth in the days that we're living in now. So that brings us to chapter 5. If you, if you have your Bibles, bring it out. If not, of course, we'll have it on screen. Um, but there's something about, I'm a little old school this way, but there's something about the physical, tactile, you know, thing of a Bible that I personally prefer. And that's a little hypocritical because I'm reading the, um, <laughs> this. But anyways, 
So chapter five, um, chapter five is an um, interesting one. Um, most biblical scholars say that chapters one through four is kind of its own independent, like, beginning chapters of, 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 of Isaiah. And chapter five is like a setup for chapter six, in which we get, like, the origin story. Like, we get an understanding of what Isaiah is. Because so far, we have no idea who Isaiah is as a prophet. But chapter five kind of stands alone in this unique space. Like, maybe one way to look at it is, like, Isaiah chapters 1 through 4, it's kind of like the extended trailer. You know, it's not like the teaser trailer, but it's like the extended version where, oh, like, these are the ones where, like, nerds would go back and, like, look at this, and it's hinting at this. It might be talking about this story. Oh, no, it's this story. You know, like, it's like, it's that extended, it's the extended version, extended trailer of Isaiah. And so, Isaiah 5 is kind of like the opening montage of Isaiah. And then, when we get to chapter 6, it's like the origin story really starts and kicks in. So that's, maybe that's one way to kind of look at what's happening now in the structure of Isaiah, because Isaiah is a pretty big book. Um, and so, to help us understand what is happening in Isaiah 5, it will be helpful, helpful for us to understand, like, this, this is like the feeling, to capture the mood and the feeling of chapter 5, which is, um, that chapter 5 is an upside-down chapter. It's the upside-down chapter. Like, the literary structure and its literary narrative, both in its writing style and, and the content, like the content of which it's writing about, like the ironies and the double entendres, like, like there are two opposing ideas that are in, in tension with one another. And so Isaiah uses literary devices like ironies um, to communicate his main idea. Those are the main tools that he uses to draw out his main point. And it's really pretty brilliant how it's written. So let's unpack that a little bit. So, um, and to do that, we're going to kind of frame it a little bit, frame the entire chapter. There are probably more ways to expand on this chapter, but today for us, we're going to look at it from three primary, primary ways that chapter 5 is an upside-down chapter, which is first, the love song is upside-down. The second is that the kingdom is upside-down. And third that God's justice is upside down. And these are the ways in which we see how chapter 5 is an upside down chapter. So the first is the love song is upside down. So for that, let's read the um, first, couple, first couple of verses. It says this, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one I had a, a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. So let's, let's pause there for a second. What we have here is the start of a beautiful love song. And this is the first time that we see Isaiah in the first, like he, he's speaking from first person. And the love song that he's singing is called Song of the Vineyard. And we get this imagery starting in chapter 1, and Isaiah picks it back up here, and then, but he turns it into a song. But the song that, as he's writing this love song, it's not like, it's not like a first person, hey, let me, let, me, let me show you how much I love you. But this, the love song is written from the perspective of the wingman. You know what I mean? You hear me? Like, it's written from like, hey... Oh uh, yeah, why not? My friend is dope. <laughs> he has his eye on you. 
<laughs> uh, he saw you across the room, and he sees that you're above average, and he has a stable job, you know? Um, he'll treat you with respect. <laughs> uh, he'll open doors for you, but if you want to, because, you know, he respects you, you know, like, I, I've never been anyone's wingman, okay? Um, it's very obvious. Um, one time I did kind of, like, it was at Commonwealth Lounge, and uh, I just laughed at him the whole time. So I'm not a very good wingman, but Isaiah's a very good one, all right? Isaiah is repping God and his, his love for his vineyard, and his vineyard being the kingdom of Israel. <laughs> I, I took that a lot farther than I, I expected to... Uh, <laughs> so Isaiah is singing a love song on behalf of God. And in it, the love song expands about how, um, how God loves and takes care of Israel. Like how God chose the best land and got rid of all the things that would hinder its growth. Like, and he gave it the best equipment and best opportunity for it to thrive. And that's as, about as far as the love song goes. After that, it, go, it gets upside down pretty quickly. And we'll read the rest of that where it goes like, where it picks up like this. Then he looked at, for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Verse 3. Now you dwells in Jerusalem and the people of Judah. Judge between me and my vineyards. A real quick, real quick pause here. Verse 3. We get a perspective change. We get a point of view change. The song gets interrupted, and now it's not Isaiah, but now God is speaking from first person. And who is God speaking to? The kingdom of Israel, which is at this time divided into two nations, two separate nations. So God takes the mic from Isaiah so that he can speak into a nation and a group of people that is currently divided. Let's continue. What more could, could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I look for good grapes, why did it yield only, only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take its hedge, I will, and it will be destroyed. I will break its wall, break down its wall, and it will be tremble, trembled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned or cultivated. The berries and thorns, or the briars and thorns, will grow there, and I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the and the people of Judah, and the vines he delights in. He looked for justice, but saw bloodshed; for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Again, verse 7, there's another perspective change. This time it's from third person. And it kind of summarizes everything that we've read so far, that God loves his people, that God loves his chosen people, but his people are a royal mess. And the way that Isaiah goes about communicating this, the mess of this whole situation, is what makes it so genius, the way how he writes it. Because not only is he writing to address the upside-down situation of Israel, but how he goes about writing it and how he goes about communicating it is in a very upside-down way. So what I mean by that is, structurally speaking, the way it's written, it's a mess. Like the point of view keeps changing. And actually, the next verse, the point of view changes again. And the verse after that, it changes again. Like the, and, the, and the switching and, and the style of writing, the style of communicating is very messy. And so it's, it's to illustrate the situation that Israel is in is very messy. And also remember, this whole thing started off as a love song, right? But it doesn't take long for the, song, for the love song to become a song of lament. 
So when we kind of put all that together, what we see here is that the song, this song, is so important to God that he literally had to take the pen, not literally, figuratively, take the pen out of Isaiah's hand, out of the messenger, so that he can start writing directly from himself to communicate to Israel, I want you to hear this from me. I don't want you to secondhand hear this. I don't want you to like, hey, I heard from so-and-so that you said this about, no, this God thing. Let me grab the mic. Let me grab the pen because I want you to know this is how I feel about you. So maybe a better way of looking at it is maybe what Isaiah wants his, right, or his readers to understand from here is that, that God, that God laments over what he loves. God laments over what he loves. God is passionate about this. God deeply cares about this. He cries, he grieves, he weeps. We've already seen the side of God in Isaiah so far. So what we have here is a God who is consistent in his lament. He is consistent about what he loves and what he cares for. God is consistent in his lament, and he laments over what he loves. And with that understanding, we can go deeper into what God is lamenting about, which is how the kingdom is upside down. So in verses uh, 8 to 25 is where the whole kingdom upside down stuff um, comes into play. And it's, it's the largest chunk of the chapter. And uh, it's also known as the six woes. Right? And these verses go more in depth about the extent of God's lament. And from here on out, Isaiah kind of goes back to his old bag of tricks. Like he goes back to his old way of his tried and true methods of writing, which is he uses a lot of like um, ironies and a lot of like couplings or, or um, uh, couplets and rhyming of ideas. And he, he, goes, he goes about using his kind of main bread and butter to communicate his main point, which is the kingdom of Israel currently, as the way both, uh, the way the nation is divided, is an upside down, is in an upside down state. So to summarize all of that, because, you know, I don't think we have time to go into it, and it's pretty, like, pretty, a lot of it's a bummer, but it's worth reading. Um, but to summarize, some of the ways that the kingdom is upside down is in its inability to administer justice, right? We just read that in verse 7. It's greed and materialism. It's overconsumption. It's pride and it's arrogance. And verses 20 and 22 summarizes like this. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. In some ways, I feel like the last verse, last 21, it's kind of like the ground zero of what makes the kingdom upside down. What makes the kingdom upside down is that it is wise in its own eyes. And some of you might recall that phrase, like it, it's a hook. It's, it's a hook that's used in the, in the book of Judges. It gets used several times over and over again to illustrate the state of Israel, right? That the kingdom of Israel is wise in its own eyes. But it's also a reference to Genesis 3, the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve consumed the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, therefore foregoing their trust in God to define what is good and evil, and instead settling from that point on to define good and evil for themselves. So when Isaiah writes this, the context is such that he's not just talking about the kingdom as a nation, as a political entity, 
but he's also talking about the kingdom as a people. And when he talks about people, he's not just talking about people group, but he's also talking about persons and individuals. And what we can take from that is that the sin and error of being wise in our wise in our own eyes starts with us. That is ground zero. And that ultimately affects us and the people group that we are around and the nation that we are part of and the society that we are part of. What we see here is that what we see here and what Isaiah is trying to communicate is that the kingdom is upside down because the souls of his people are upside down. Any and every human entity, any and everything that we strive for, no matter how good or noble, is always going to have some flavor of upside downness. There will always be parts of everything that we endeavor, including church and charity work and recovery, and where it's going to be difficult to discern what is evil and what's good what's good or what is light and what is dark what is bitter and sweet because the kingdom is upside down because the souls of its people are upside down so what isaiah does here with his writings is to highlight israel's upside downness in order to highlight the upside downness of the human condition and our need for god to do something about it so what does god do about about this stuff God's justice, which is upside down. God's upside down justice. Starting in verse 25 until the rest of the chapter, we see um, God's justice unfold. Um, in many ways, it's upside down to like um, how most of us would intuitively think justice should be like. And there are two main ways that the justice of God um, gets administered. This is the two main ways that God's justice is upside down. The first is um, that instead of raising Israel, instead of raising Israel to be better, to be a better version of themselves, to elevate their consciousness, you know, instead God elevates its neighbors to administer justice. You know, I don't, I don't know about you, but that always felt weird to me. This happens a lot in the Bible. Like, that always felt weird to me, like, um, like another nation gets so powerful that eventually Israel and the nations are affected by it, by its power, and they have nowhere else to turn to except to God. And this is what we see prophesied at the end of Isaiah in chapter 5, or in chapter 5. And Isaiah's time specifically, what he's talking about is the kingdom of Assyria, but this could also have more meanings than, well, more meanings than that, and which is what, often what we see in the Old Testament prophecies. So this is the first way that we see God administering his justice, that God raises other nations, not Israel, to administer his justice. And the second way that we see God administering his justice is found in verse 25, and we'll read that together. Therefore, the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His, his hand is still upraised. Now, here we see clearly that God is angry with his people 
for the lack of justice and righteousness. And this goes back to what we saw in verse 7, that instead of justice and righteousness, there were more bloodshed and cries of distress. And what Israel describes is God's anger, right? He, and his anger leads his hand being raised, his hands being raised. In other translations, it, it talks about his hand being stretched out. This phrase and this imagery of an upraised hand, a stretched out hand, gets repeated over again in Isaiah, and it gets, goes all the way through the gospel and the rest of the New Testament. And I think most people, when we think about this phrase, you know, raised hands in the context of an angry God, we're thinking, like, we're not thinking, does God have a question? You know, that's not, that's not what we're asking, right? Like, we're thinking, hey, God is about to cock his hand back and lay the smack down on somebody, you know what I mean? That's what I'm thinking, right? And to be honest, it's a little triggering, you know, like, because um, I had Asian parents, you know what I mean? Um, and maybe that's for you too, not that you had Asian parents, but you know, you had parents like that is what I'm trying to say. And that kind of context keeps us from at a distance from God. Because it does for me, and it's a real thing. I think it's a legit thing. But that's my perspective of, uh, my perspective of God. But when we consider Jesus, when we think about Jesus, because, you know, if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father, right? When do we see God's anger being met with his arms raised and stretched out? It's on the cross. That was mounted on top of a hill shaped like a skull. God is so pissed off about sin. He was so pissed off about injustice. He was grieving and lamenting so much of, over what he loved and cared about so much that he took the weight and the burden of sin and injustice symbolic, symbolically on the back with, it, with the cross. But spiritually, he carried it in his soul and he put himself on judgment with an outstretched hand on the cross. On a, on, and he put himself to judgment on a tool of foreign oppression and judgment and execution so that my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, that my sins not in part but the whole will be nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. This is how God administers justice. God allowed the Roman Empire to rise so that this imagery of an outstretched hand will not remain a prophecy, but a reality. The text from today, from chapter 5, is no exception from what we see so far, in, so far in Isaiah, that God, in his judgment, that there's always hope. It's never just about judgment, but there's always hope within. Judgment and hope is interwoven. They're interwoven spiritual realities that blanket all throughout the fabric of the biblical narrative and all throughout the fabric of history. With that said, I think most of us are in the same boat here. Um, when we consider the world that we live in, when we consider um, the burdens of injustice, I think there are those of us who are angry of what we see, and we grieve, and we lament over what we see for the people that we love and the nation that we love or 
at the very least, the current relationship status with the nation is complicated. Right? And I pray that the spiritual work that we do in chapter 5 is the same spiritual work that we do in the world that we live in. I pray and hope that we would work out our faith. And as we look at this world, that we would hold justice and hope together. And I truly believe that if we do that faithfully, we may discover Jesus out of this. We may come out of this more Christ-like instead of more bitter, more angry, less petty. We may have more fruit of the Spirit. May that be true for us today. Let's pray. Um, I feel like most prophecies are like this, God. It's, uh, it deals in the, it's like it teeter-totters between a brutal reality and a hope that seems almost unattainable. And I pray that your spirit would like break through that. And the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to hold justice and hope together. And as we've seen in this text today, I pray that we would remind ourselves um, the hope, the hope that we could count on is in the person of Jesus. It's rooted in Jesus. And I pray that we would find no greater hope, no deeper hope, no other living hope than in you, Jesus. Um, so we bring our cares. We bring our burdens. We bring um, our heaviness. We cast our cares upon you. And we ask for divine exchange, that we would see your hope. And we would strive for your justice. And then that we would end up more and more like the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Elliot, for uh, preaching from the Word of God today. Um, and today I uh, want to invite you uh, into a time of communion. So if you don't have your uh, communion cups yet, uh, you're welcome to... Uh, scoot on to the, out, uh, to the front of our church to pick one up. And as I was reflecting on the Word of God preached today uh, in the book of Isaiah, um, I just really appreciate this uh, imagery of God in his vineyard. And I also really appreciate the, the kind of uh, motif of uh, the love song and how creative and how diverse the Word of God is with that, company, that, that uh, incorporates so many different genres of literature and of writing. And what we have today here in the book of Isaiah is kind of the heart of God written through the words of a love song. And that reminds me of just the special relationship that God has with his people. And the language that scripture uses to describe the relationship between God and his people is the language of covenant. And there's a lot to be said theologically about uh, the importance and centrality of this concept of covenant to our Christian faith. And perhaps one of the closest things or the closest equivalents to a covenant relationship is the covenant of marriage, the relationship between um, uh, two spouses. And speaking as a clinical psychologist now, as well as a pastor, um, I have found through research, through clinical work, uh, through my own uh, experiences in my own marriage, that 
one, that some of the strongest and most intimate marriages that I've encountered aren't the kinds of marriages that uh, don't necessarily come from the kinds of marriages where the hus- uh, husband and wife or the two spouses, that they never argue with each other. In fact, when I'm in small groups with other Christian couples and, and some Christian couples share, you know, we just never argue with each other, you know? That's when I start getting suspicious and I start asking questions like, are you not arguing because you don't even know each other? Or, you know, do, are you not arguing because um, maybe one's dominating and holds all the power and holds all the cards over the other? Because that's actually quite common that for couples to not argue because one just essentially gets their way the whole time, right? But when you think of a healthy marriage, you think of one that knows how to navigate not just the positive and happy times, but also knows is familiar with, but also knows how to conflict with each other. And I find that intimacy and closeness actually is the fruit of fighting well or conflicting well. And that brings me back to uh, the Word of God here in Isaiah again, of this idea that even within a love song, you have not only the positive, the celebration, the worship, the adoration, but you also have the negative. You have the lament you have the emphasis on justice. You have this kind of, uh, I'm struggling with God throughout the night like Jacob did in prayer uh, with God. And our church is about both the positive and the negative. We're not just going to be all about the celebration. That's certainly a part of it. But we're also about the lament. And that's just as important to our church because, you guys, we're, we're, we're serious about intimacy with God. And if we're serious about intimacy with God, we need to be serious about both the positive sides of our relationship with God as well as the negative sides of our relationship with God. And especially during the last four to five years with all the stuff that's happening in our communities and happening in our country, I've actually been finding myself in my time of prayer with God, spending much more time in lament, kind of going, God, like, do you see what's going on? Do you see what people are doing in your name? Like, do you not care about this? Like, can we do something about this? And that's actually one of the reasons and one of the things that keeps bringing me back uh, into um, serving and being a part of this church. And this is part of my expression of what can we do with all, in light of all the things that are happening in our country, in our, in our world, and what can we do in response uh, from the perspective of God's people and God's word. So um, if you have your elements with you, I want to invite you to gently and carefully pull out the purple film on the top. And, um, and I can't think of the, a better analogy of God's covenant with his people than through uh, the, the sacrament of communion. And in fact, God uh, dying on the cross and offering his body and his blood for us is a, the clearest sign of his commitment in his covenantal relationship with his people. So this bread, accordingly, is made from many grains from many fields, yet was formed into one single loaf. In the same way, we are all from many cultures and many places, but yet we are one body. The communion is a reminder that the body of Christ was broken so that we can be made one with him. The body of Christ broken with you. Let's respond with the following. The body of Christ broken for me. Be careful as you open the, the bottom section. 
And also the juice, juice of this cup contains many vines made by many hands, yet it also pours, yet it pours freely. In the same way, let us pour ourselves freely, just as Christ modeled for us. May we be generous givers of our grace, mercy, and blessings to each other and to all. The cup of Christ poured out for you. Let's respond. The Christ poured out for me. And to close our time together, let us respond together with the following. Though we partake now from a distance, we long for the day to partake together in person. Though we partake now with partial satisfaction, we long for the full feast at the eternal table in the presence of God. Uh, let's